Hello listeners, just a quick apology before we start the episode. We had a few audio issues that I didn't notice until I already started editing, by which point it was too late to go back and re-record everything. I've done my best to edit around the issues, but there's still a few glitches here and there, so I just wanted to say I'm sorry about that, and hopefully it won't ruin your enjoyment of the rest of the podcast. Hot off the press, Tom, my new fun pack, Tiger Talk Magazine. Wow! It's part of my action pack, along with magic pens, a magic window, and... It's brilliant, Tony! You can say that again. It's brilliant, Tony! Tony's action pack, free with eight tokens Achoo! from Kellogg's Frosties. They're great! They're under starter's orders, lots of wheel spin, and just look, Scalextric have fitted smoke generators. What a start! You can't beat Scalextric from Hornby. Welcome listeners of Illusion to episode 3 of Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode retrospective podcast about everybody's favourite kids' TV show, Nightmare. I'm Martin Harder, and yes, it is a silly surname that I didn't choose. Uh, my name's Martin O'Doni, and yes, Martin Harder is a silly surname that he didn't choose. And we have a guest here today. Now tell me, who are you and what the f*** are you doing in my flat? I'm Simon, but it can be Martin if you like. <laughs> Simon Monk, that's me. Or Martin Monk. There you go. <laughs> Today we're looking at Series 1, Episode 3. First broadcast on September the 21st, 1987. Rick Astley was clinging on to the number one spot for a final week with Never Gonna Give You Up. And no change in the movie charts either, with The Untouchables still at the top. And so, without further ado... Adieu. Further ado. Yeah. <laughs> adieu. Right. Can you remember what you were doing back then? Well, back then, I was a teenager. I was the lead singer of a Farnborough punk rock band back in 1987. Oh, very nice. Mm. What were you called? For Good name. Well, that's memorable. <laughs> For raw, like that. It actually sounds like some of the monsters in Nightmare, so I can see why you decided to join us. <laughs> but you also do quite a lot of stuff on YouTube, don't you, Simon? Uh, yes, yes. I am the Phantom Monk on YouTube, and I do low-budget filmmaking-type things, horror effects and stuff like that. Can I just point out the um the sweatshirt I'm wearing, by oh, the way? Oh, that's very cool. For those who are listening, Martin has just pointed out his uh, David Rowe Nightmare sweatshirt. I've, uh, I've got one myself, actually. They are very cool. The images of a dungeoneer walking through uh, uh, some kind of a uh, goblin tunnel. The image first appeared in 1989, I think it was, on the front cover of one of the Nightmare novellas called The Labyrinths of Fear. That is bound to come up in a pub quiz at some point in the lives of everybody, so remember that. What we'll do, I think, is we'll put a link to the store in the description for the episode. Check out David Rowe's store, buy some Nightmare stuff. So without further ado, let's crack on with the show. Welcome, Watchers of Illusion, to the Castle of Confusion. Phase across time with us once more, for this is the Age of Adventure. 
So to begin with, we get the uh, usual pre-recorded greeting from Trey Guard, just like we did last week, and, uh, and uh, then we're into a dungeon ditty. The dungeon ditty, for those who are new to the podcast, is the little poem that Trey Guard does at the beginning of the episodes to update us on what's come before. I like the dungeon ditties, but um, a common problem with them is some of the virtual rhymes that they use are extremely corny. It doesn't just happen in them, I should mention, that people talk in rhymes quite a lot in Nightmare, and a lot of the time, they just not really rhymes. I flashbacks of the Bungo episode of Dramatic Readings. So when it comes to sun and fun and goodness in the jungle, they all prefer the sunny, funny one they call Mbongo. Mbongo does not rhyme with jungle! Calm down, dear. It's just a commercial. Bring me my whipping boy! Simon and I work together on a YouTube channel called The Broom Cupboard Club, and one of the things we do is something called Dramatic Readings, which is basically me playing a character, reading out kids' TV theme songs and advert jingles as if they're Shakespeare. I do miss Umbongo. I liked having a little carton of them to take to school with me. It's still around. and I like Yeah, you can get them in like Happy Shopper and stuff like that. I always used to get it in the cinema, I didn't. Uh, you're a lot older than me, I don't yes. remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and now time turns, the fire burns, time out is gone, the quest is on. Now where am I? You're on the edge of a ledge. There's a, a deep gap in front of you, and across from you, there's a woman sitting on a rock. At last! At last! My champion! So we rejoin it with Dungeoneer Simon emerging from the bomb room, which uh, he was still in at the end of the last episode, so presumably it was an extremely long fuse, and he arrives right into the old Serpent's Mouth cavern, and his team inform him that he is on the edge of a ledge. It almost sounds like something by Dr. Seuss. I do not like it, I hear by pledge. I do not like the edge of ledge. <laughs> so, so anyway, looking at publicity shots available on Nightmare.com today, we can see that the uh, staging of the scene actually had Mary Miller, the, the actress playing Lilith, sitting on top of a one metre square blue block. So the, the exact measurements uh, for the set furniture had to be forwarded to David Rose so that he could accommodate characters and obstacles into the CGI artwork. Lilith seems in a much better mood than usual, noticing immediately that Dungeoneer Simon is literally carrying her favour and welcomes him as her champion. She asks his name without prompt from the teammates. He replies, Simon Nichols, my lady. This is a good example of what Martin was saying last week about the Dungeoneer kind of taking the reins on occasion and being a lot more bold. Yeah, it's quite good as well, isn't it? Rather than relying on the team all the time. I'd actually suggest that he's actually being a little bit sarcastic. <laughs> With the m'lady. He says my and then yeah. hesitates and says lady. <laughs> he's got other opinions about her that he's not expressing. I just assumed that he was getting into it. I don't know. To well, be honest, it is Lilith after all. That's true. I get the feeling when um, when watching Simon, he's he's not afraid to be a bit psyche, and I think he was being just a little bit psyche there by saying, "Simon Nichols, my <laughs> lady." <laughs> oh, all right, I'll say lady. Trigard appears in his little box. <laughs> and is almost immediately blown away by Lilith, again showing her dominance over the Dungeon Master. Lilith conjures the pathway across the chasm and invites Simon to approach so that she may have further consultation with him. And she tells him that she has a task for him. Listen. Ahead of you, through the serpent's mouth, lies a chamber which is occupied by a catacombite. 
This creature, if creature you can call it, belongs to the lower levels. But some spiteful sorcerer has brought it up here especially to annoy me. Its presence so near is very distressing. She gives Simon the spell Freezer in order to carry out his task, and tells him that the safest pathway from the Catacombites chamber is the third pathway from the right. The team are furiously writing everything down when Lilith gives Simon a second spell, Flare. She bids him farewell, and before they leave the chamber, Draylight explains to the team and us how spells work in the dungeon. We were talking about this earlier, weren't we, Simon, about how it's nice that they get some educational stuff in. Yeah, something yeah, educational. I think um, given the average age of a contestant on Nightmare was roughly 12, I think they're probably past the age where they need spelling lessons where you get taught how to spell well or flair. Yeah, but, you know, I think it's maybe for the... Yeah. For the viewers as well. It's, yeah, it's when you get to Shroud, that's the problem. Having said that, I must admit, some of the teams that um, we get later on, they probably could have done <laughs> 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 a, a, a bit of tutelage before they actually came onto the screen. Missed out the O! Letter <laughs> O! But basically, the, the bottom line is, and I actually do quite like it, I do, actually, I do actually think it's quite a fun way of expressing magic. You cast a spell by literally spelling out the name of the spell, because it is actually a test of making sure that you, you've got some basic literacy, I suppose. The dispel bit I'm a bit unsure about, I think teaching people to spell things wrongly is not, <laughs> I'm not quite so sure I, I, I prove of the morality or the practicality of that, but it, it works context. It's just a play on words, really, isn't it? Spell casting. And quite a clever one, in my opinion. The thing that's missing from Tregard's expert is something that we've never actually been too sure about, which is mentioning Neil's team in season two. They tried another thing um, in one scene, which they called turn spell, and the uh, the producers appeared to respond to it, but we've never actually found out exactly what that was. It was when dispel failed, they tried something called turn spell, um, and it did actually cause a magic effect. So what exactly turn spell is, I don't know, but it, it does appear to be a legitimate chant. The team delegate advisor Jonathan as the spellcaster and guide Dungeoneer Simon into their next chamber. This is definitely the best episode so far and one of the reasons is we actually get something different. Farewell Simon! Farewhel Nowhere am I. Simon for goodness sake don't go any closer. You're relatively safe as long as you stay put. This is a catacomb bite which Lilith spoke of. It has no intelligence or self-will but is virtually indestructible and must be neutralized by magic. And this is the point where Nightmare really kind of lived up to its name because this thing was bloody terrifying. Something straight out of the Evil Dead, isn't it? Really? Yeah. <laughs> if you stay in the chamber for too long, it starts to lose its edge because you quickly realise that the catacomb bite is just uh, one another of those monsters which is just repeating the same motions over and over. Yeah. If you're looking too closely, you then start to lose the, some of the edge from it. But the fact that it's actually properly articulated and properly moving and it's a warping of, of a human skeleton, a massive warping of human skeleton, means when you first see it it's terrifying yeah <laughs> and, uh, it was one of my favorite early monsters the catacomb it's actually quite iconic there was a, a catacomb on the front cover of the first nightmare novella book can you beat the challenge i think wasn't it or as it's called today can you possibly find a copy in the shops anymore oh it's got really difficult they used to be 10 a penny but they're not now they're very rare but as i said the catacomb is awesome one of my favorite monsters they handle this chamber quite well but i do think simon makes contact with the creature several times and gets away with it 
just yeah, just under <laughs> the skull as well, doesn't he? When he's ducking down, I think he touches it there. It's kind of hard to tell where the because it's obviously a two D picture. There's no depth to the image is the problem. So you, that allows the production team a little bit of freedom of judgment. But anyway, so the catacomb bite must be neutralized with magic. Is their chance to put their newly learned spell casting skills to use? Spell casting. F. Ah. E. E. Z. E. Ah. Well done, team. But remember, the creature is only neutralized. Even a brush against it can do untold harm. Guide your dungeoneer with care, but don't linger. The spell works exactly as expected by freezing the monster in place. The team, heeding Lilith's advice, guides Simon out of the room via the third doorway from the right. This means Dungeoneer Simon literally has to duck walk under the monster. When I'm crouching, you can make me do the duck walk! I watched this one with my wife and she was actually proper on the edge of her seat watching. It is actually quite nervous watching the Dungeoneer get so close to the catacomb bite. Especially when it looks like it's looking right at them. At least one occasion he brushes the knuckle of the catacomb bite. On another one, I think his head does just make contact with the jaw. Now what am I? Warning, team! Lilith was not to be trusted. She has sent you into the great corridor of the catacomb. This is patrolled by the army of the dead. Exit with haste. Oh, yes, it's the great corridor of the catacomb. But it disappoints time after time. Traegar tells someone to hold out the key in front of him if he has it, which of course he does. He holds the symbol out in front of him so that the team may see it and match it to the corresponding symbol in front of one of the doors. The fact that the corridor of the catacomb has one of those symbols again underlines the fact they are actually on the right path. Also, I think this kind of is the nail in the coffin of the thing from episode one where they claim it would have been enough to remember the symbol. Yes. Because Treyguard specifically tells them they have to hold the symbol up because it is a key. But also, it's very unlikely they'd be able to remember the exact shape of the symbol because this would probably been several hours later. And that backs up my theory that episode one, they just wanted a quick quest and a quick death just to show what the show was all about. Could be, could be. It may just have been that that was the way they were going to do it all the time and they decided to change it because they realised it wasn't going to work. The team guides Simon to the correct door and into the next chamber. Where am I? I don't know. The Simon emerges into the same darkened room where David met his grisly fate in episode one. But this time, our team are actually prepared to deal with it. Spellcasting. F. L. A. R. E. And, I should mention... But they cast the flare spell without prompting from Treyguard. It's definitely very refreshing after the last team. Treyguard, when should I breathe in? Treyguard, when should I breathe out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's my name? Treyguard. It's happened on more, more than one occasion. What's your name, young Dungeoneer? What should I say? <laughs> 
That happens more often than not in Nightmare Angela. <laughs> very, very depressing. So the room is flooded with light, revealing the wellway entrance to level two for the very first time in Nightmare's history. Treyguard informs the team that the number of levels of the dungeon is not known even by him, but success lies in the lowest level. Treyguard is talking about not knowing how many levels are. <laughs> because if he didn't know how does he know whether he's even mastered it he claimed in the very first episode that he alone had mastered it anyway this team is the first to reach level two by going through a wellway in the first couple of seasons the only way of passing from one level to the next was for a wellway third season they introduced a new way to get from level two to level three which is actually really spectacular oh that was always my favorite the minecart yeah the minecart ride is wonderful i think i think that's every fan's favorite that one the wells themselves there's actually a big blue round human-sized pot that's actually in the set and it's blue so that um you can superimpose the image of it um using the chroma key but there is actually a physical object there i remember from the novels uh, the, the wellways were included in the story of how Treyguard mastered the dungeon and it was actually quite an elaborate process climbing down a wellway you had to have a rope and then sort of lower yourself down Treyguard and Folly the Jester were both questing through the dungeon and they actually had to lower a rope down into the well and sort of lower themselves gradually and awkwardly and elaborately through it here they just jump in there's a bit of a comic thing with the dungeoneer landing and bending his knees perfect two point landing from a fall from about 30 feet above. Of course, in reality, if they had just done that, they'd have just broken their legs. And as darkness begins to set in again, the team guides Simon into the wellway and we get our first look at level two. What am I? Simon drops down into the chamber of the level two guardian. In this instance, it is Cedric the Mad Monk. So... Cedric. It's actually a little bit formal here. They start adding dimension to his character in subsequent appearances. Here, he actually, re although he's rude in every other respect, he acts exactly the same way as the wall monsters. But it, I say later on, it, it becomes much more nuanced and there's much more varied ways he behaves. And we should say, we have checked, he is not played by Wolf from Gladiators. Does look a lot like him. <laughs> a long-running conspiracy theory that Lawrence Werber changed his name to Wolf so that nobody would recognise him from Nightmare. But <laughs> Lawrence Werber is actually a dentist today. Um, oh, really? He qualified as a dentist in 2003, according to uh, research done by somebody on Nightmare.com. He passed his qualification about 18 years ago, apparently. His acting career didn't really go very far. Oh, well, it's a shame, actually. I think he's a pretty good actor. It must be said, if he never found another part at least he found his part he was born to play Cedric the Mad Monk as the uh, listeners may know Martin and I are involved in uh, Nightmare audio drama and Cedric is one of the favourite parts that I've played just because it's so much fun it's literally just shouting and insulting. <laughs> Say dog's bottom, please. Dog's bottom! <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great insult, that one. <laughs> Until watching Nightmare, I'd never really considered the idea of calling somebody a dog's bottom insult. Tim was in hysterics at that. <laughs> it sounds like the kind of insult you get in a New York gangster film. But yeah, it's 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 become one of my favourite, all-time favourite insults, thanks to Cedric. There's the cabin elf, Elita, who's also very abusive. She's around in season six. Ah, uh, yeah. Alright, face ache. That's just so half-hearted, isn't it? I suppose if Cedric had called people face ache, it would have sounded a bit a, a bit better than, than when she did it. But yeah, face ache, no, it just don't work. 
dog's bottom. <laughs> dog's bottom. That's great. I love that. <laughs> Trading Guard states that level two guardians cannot attack until you fail to answer their riddles. He tells Simon that he must call out I challenge in order to face the guardian and that he mustn't touch any food until he has emerged victorious. I challenge. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Weak, mewling, awful brain fool. I have three riddles, and truth I seek. The first riddle is, A prince of Islam on his day held all of Christendom at bay. To Moorish hordes he was Salah ad-Din, but how today do we name him? Not Mohammed. No, definitely not Mohammed. That was 500 centuries earlier. And definitely not not Mohammed Ali, as one of the advisors said. No, I'm speaking as a historian here because I'm, I am a big history buff and I'm, I'm studying history for a degree at the moment. It does depress me how few people know who Saladin was. Well, I, I, I have to really be honest, we had to Wikipedia it. He was, a, he was actually effectively an emperor. He, he ruled enormous lands. He was an enormously successful military general and he was the arch enemy, also um, paradoxically also a great friend of Richard the Lionheart. So if Richard the Lionheart is supposed to be one of our most famous kings, how do we not know who his, great, his greatest rival was? But so few people seem to have ever heard of him. It's, it's, it's very, very sad that. He was, he was a hugely important figure during the Crusades. Why do we now call him Saladin? In, in, in uh, Imperial India, there was um, a very prominent uh, sepoy called Suraj Uddala, and the British pronounced it Sir Roger Dowler. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same phenomenon. We're just lazy with with foreign languages in this country, <laughs> and we just take something that that's that flows off our tongues a bit easier. Salah ad Din. It's quicker just to say Saladin. I, I have to admit that I'm not really surprised they didn't actually know the answer to this one. At that age, I think it's un, it's forgivable, but it does astonish me how many adults don't seem to know, seem to know who Saladin was. No, I didn't, but now I do. So. <laughs> I'm learning. But I think everyone, <laughs> including kids, should know that Muhammad Ali definitely didn't no. uh, hold back the Christian awards. Um, <laughs> Although, had he been there at the time, he probably... He couldn't hold <laughs> back George Foreman. Uh... <laughs> anyway, so on to the second riddle. Red fought white and white fought red. Great houses fought while England bled. But answer as my riddle poses, who fought each other over roses. Yeah, considering this team is from Yorkshire, I, I would be surprised if they hadn't got this one. Well, technically speaking, they didn't get it right, but they were given the benefit of the doubt. You might have noticed during the Dungeon Ditty earlier, there was another reference to the Yorks and Lancashire. The correct answer is actually York and Lancaster. You can get away with saying Yorkshire and Lancashire, but it's actually the House of York and the House of Lancaster that fought the Wars of the Roses. A funny little uh, statistic for you here. There were more Yorkist soldiers living in Lancashire and more Lancastrian soldiers living in Yorkshire during the Wars of the Roses than the other way around. Oh, did you want to, did you want to try that? Okay. Um, yeah. Gruffing yeah. your voice up. <coughs> yeah. Gruffing my voice up. Yeah. Like that. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Rasping. Okay. okay. Where falls the blow that harms you not, yet ends the state of common man? That's good, that. <laughs> oh, that that's, that's good. I'm trying. When I did hear the answer to this one, I was like, of course it is. I think it's a bit of an unfair question to direct at kids. I'll, I'll say that. I think it is It is a little bit obscure sounding. That would be a great riddle to have on the Crystal Maze. Yeah. And that would be a fantastic riddle for Mumsy to ask one of the contestants of the Crystal Maze. The answer is, of course, the shoulder, because we're talking about knighthood. 
One's the score. So pass on, lame brain. I'll take the grub. <laughs> you won't be needing it where you're going. <laughs> team score one. They're able to pass but the life force is critical and Cedric denies them access to food. They head into the next chamber barely clinging to life. Now where am I? You're at the top of a flight of stairs. Shuffle forward just till your feet's over the edge. Yeah, I can feel it. Right, move Warning to team, life force energy level critical. You must find food immediately. I think it's fair to say they were a little bit lucky that there just happened to be more food in the clue. <laughs> Simon, you noticed something as well, didn't you? At this point, just as they left that room before they got into the next one, uh, the jaw came off the skull, but then when they were in the room, the jaw was there again. Yes. That happens a few times in season one. The, um, yeah. the life pot gets turned backwards. A little bit, yeah. In reality, it never runs out. See it running out, the Dungeoneer is already in what's called losing status. It's never, It's not really an integral part of the gameplay. It's just there to hurry the team up and give them something to, to race against because it's taken too long. It, it doesn't really cause starvation. There's never really been an example of that in the entire series. It's the magic bomb fuse again, isn't it? Yes, yes. The magic bomb fuse, as we shall see in, a, in an upcoming episode, suddenly shoots through <laughs> at incredible speed. It just... It just starts burning, and suddenly it's right at the, it's right at the edge of the bomb. When you're in losing status, when you're not in losing status, it sort of goes slowly, slowly, slowly along, jumps backwards, slowly, slows up, jumps backwards again, slowly, slowly. So here we are in the level two clue room for the first time. Just once, I want to see a dungeoneer fall down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, it's what you pray for always. <laughs> <laughs> it does come close to happening a few times. I'm pretty sure that the real staircase is a wooden staircase that's in the blue room. And the hard times when you do notice the, um, the dungeoneer is really close to stumbling and going down. I don't think they'd be allowed to use it today. There's something about the level two clue room that I find really haunting. It always seems to be the perfect place in all of the dungeon better than anywhere else for having a ghost and it often is haunted and it works really well in there for some reason i always associate it with the oracle that's one of the creepiest things in nightmare it's not scary and it's not dangerous it's just otherworldly and unusual the oracle it's it's something which has immense knowledge but doesn't have any self-awareness so it, it doesn't all it does is just keep reciting facts at anybody who passes it. And that kind of detachment does emphasise the otherworldliness. It's it's in this world, but at the same time, it doesn't really seem to see anything about it around it. It doesn't seem to notice anything about it. If you're looking closely at the top of the staircase, watch for another ghost, which is the ghost of the banister rail. The first two seasons, I have to say, David Rose screwed up. He'd set the top of the banister rail too low. And so most of the time when they're lining up the image on, on Rose artwork with the physical staircase and the physical banister rail that's on there, you can actually see a faint image of the real banister rail above the painted one. So when they reach out and grab the banister rail, a lot of the time, the engineers they actually appear to be holding on to something barely visible above the rail rather than the rail itself um, and it's a problem they never actually solved in the first two seasons they only finally corrected it properly in the third season just in time to get rid of it after the third season the room was gone which is a shame so here we are in the level two clue room for the first time simon puts the apple in his knapsack just in time Literally, all that remains of the life force clock is a single rolling eye. Once life force has been reinstated to green, they look at the other objects on the table. A key, 
some pills, and a bar of gold that Dungeoneer Simon initially mistakes for a snuff box. The key! It gives me... Uh, the key. <laughs> I come out in hives as soon as you mention it. <laughs> carry on, carry on. The key. Casper, <laughs> <laughs> the key! He is universally despised by Nightmare fans. I have never encountered <laughs> a Nightmare fan who likes Casper. It's an evil, stupid concept, and he is performed a it is actually Lawrence Werber again. If Cedric was his greatest triumph in acting, Casper the Key was... <laughs> that was his nader. Horrible high-pitched nasal voice and sounding so smug with himself. And oh, just, oh, and he appears so often in season one. It actually spoils the fact that we finally got onto new territory and we got into level two at last and we're seeing all these new rooms. And then he comes along and he's like, can we go back to level one and talk to Granitas again or something? Trey tell Simon if he's still carrying any level one objects then he should abandon them before picking up anything else he also says that he senses the presence of a sentient being (laughs) but can't tell if they're being as a friend or foe foe definitely a foe no not not, not a foe just just one of those people you hate because they're not actually unfriendly you just wish they were unfriendly so you had an excuse to do something horrible to (laughs) (laughs) Simon picks up the key to examine it and nearly jumps out of his skin. Yeah, he does. Yes. <laughs> right, um, this key's got loads... Hey! Hey, watch it! You don't drop me! It's the key. Hey! <laughs> what are you doing? Ask it what it is. What are you? I'm Casper! Casper the key! That's me! And even though I've seen that scene about 2,000 times in my life, I still jump out of my skin at that moment. (laughs) Quite the same reason. (laughs) So Casper informs Simon that Merlin granted him sentience because he kept losing him. He had plenty of motivation to do that. He says that if Simon holds on to him, then he'll aid him in his quest, as long as Simon doesn't bang him about too much. The team decides to also take the pills and guide Simon out. I think they were quite lucky here, to be honest, because they didn't have any clues. Well, clues are actually rare on level two. It's a, although it's called the clue room, it's pretty rare that you actually get any specific advice whilst you're in there. You're actually a bit lucky if there's an oracle there or something like that. Come on, come on. Now, um, you're in a room. On the wall opposite, there's five doorways. A, key- a keyhole keeps appearing in each one. This is just a quick room put in so that they have to use Casper in some way. There's a short back and forth comedy routine before the keyhole settles in one place and Casper is able to unlock the door. Yeah, it's, it's whack-a-mole, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. The interesting thing is that I don't think they realised it until um, after they'd already done it and they tried to compensate later. The, because the lock is moving around, it actually means there's no lock on the other doors until <laughs> the lock moves to it. Those doors are actually wide open, that means. A, lo- a door in the dungeon is only locked when you can see a lock on it or some, some other obstruction in front of it. There isn't anything in front of them. They could, the, the dungeon could just walk through them. A later version of that scene, Casper actually refers to that anomaly and comes up with a rationalisation against it. But I actually think that that was, that was a, um, a bit of a foul-up by the producers. I think, I think they didn't realise until it was too late that they'd, they'd actually created an anomaly there. Casper the key and rationalisation. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't say it was a good rationalisation. <laughs> the implication he was offering was just it's more dangerous if you go through them when there isn't a lock on it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. 
sunshine. Either. You've got to admire those Amiga 500 graphics as well. Well, the standards of 1987, they are fantastic. And I was totally blown away by them at the time. And that's all I'm going to say. Are you impressed, Mr. Monk? I don't know. I mean, I had a ZX81. So. <laughs> so did I. There you go. <laughs> I got Space Invaders and Muncher for ZX81. That was basically the Muncher was basically Pac-Man for ZX81. Even the better loaded. I just used to buy the magazines and sit there for hours typing the games in that people had written. Yeah, and then you try to save it to the RAM pack, and it doesn't save it. So yeah. the next one, you've got to type the whole oh, thing yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never really did the type in stuff. We had a Spectrum Plus two, I think. Oh, that's for lazy programmers. ZX81 is how I learned to do BASIC. I can still program in BASIC today, but why would anybody bother? The extent of my programming knowledge with BASIC is going into WH Smith, going up to the BBC Micro they had there, and putting ten print boobies. Twenty <laughs> go to ten. Run. And then I did. <laughs> My favourite was putting 10 print irreversible systems failure. Computer will explode in 30 seconds and then running that. <laughs> <laughs> then going to the front door of WH Smith, looking back and watching the star panicking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was a mean person, that one. Hold me up! Quick, quick! Now what am I? You're in a big room. It looks a bit like a library. And in front of you on the floor, there's there's three blocks. There's a chair. Ooh, it's another puzzle. Yeah, I love puzzles. So we arrive in the Hall of Folly. Now this is basically the midway point of a successful quest. It's very obviously um, designed to be the sort of a traditional wizard's library with lots of spell books and ingredients and what have you around the place. It was replaced in season three by Merlin's throne room. Although this itself is actually Merlin's throne room because it's got a throne in the middle of it. I actually prefer the Hall of Folly. I think it's superior to, to Merlin's throne room and that's a pity more wasn't done with it. Because all it was ever really used for was just for Merlin to do yet another riddle challenge and again, I think everyone's getting slightly tired of riddle challenges by this station nice quests it is actually rather a striking bit of work I suppose it looks a little bit like Merlin's home in uh, the Disney film The Sword in the Stone it does look like it may have been based on that there's potential in there that I don't think was tapped you can do all sorts of things with it all that you really got instead was a puzzle to make the wizard appear the wizard appears after a couple of riddles and then he naps off again the puzzle always looked too easy to me as a kid but I kept forgetting that the dungeoneer is blindfolded yeah. as Merlin says in one of the quests in the first season it's only a toy well yeah it is so why not do something different they could have done, they could have done things with it that didn't involve Merlin at all quite possibly a bit of wasted potential I think right that was it M slide it up against the other block this block Very yeah good hey, right. come on come on there's come another on. there's another block yeah, yeah just it... lift that up and put it on top of the block you've just moved right well done oh dear oh dear what a splitting headache but anyway, they complete the block puzzle here, and the very instant the final block is in place, here appears an old man with huge beard and very, very long mane of hair down his back and some very, very silly coloured clothes, which make him look like he's uh, sort of dressed up in a dressing gown made in Hawaii. A John Woodlock is just generally a brilliant character actor. I would agree with that, certainly. He's actually very famous amongst Doctor Who fans. The actual character of Merlin as portrayed in here is a stereotype. He's just, he's just a, a doddery old fool. Then um, is just about the weakest, lamest stereotypes in all of fiction, which is a shame. John Wood was an actor of enormous experience um, and, and expertise. I prefer his Mogdred to his Merlin. I think, I think there were times in, when he was playing Merlin, 
I think he was rather trying to play it up a bit too much. I think he realised um, that he was the only really well-established, really quite famous actor in the series at that point, with the possible exception of Mary Miller. And I think when he appeared, he, he tended to sort of um, embellish his performances a little bit, just as though to say to the rest of the cast, get in your place, which is behind me. So I think, I think that was excellent when he was playing Mogdred. Having played both Merlin and Mogdred, I can vouch that Mogdred is definitely the most fun. It's almost always more fun to play the villain. It is. It is. In our plays, I play Lord Fear, which means I'm also playing one of the arch villains. <laughs> I think I, th- I find it more fun than when I'm trying to play any other character. We don't actually see Mogdred in season one. He's definitely part of the setup at this point. The reason we don't see him in season one is simply because nobody got far enough to actually encounter him. We do get to see a lot of Merlin. He also makes a reference to a character called Folly. Although this is the Hall of Folly, it's not got much to do with a character called Folly. Um, and it's actually, it does, it does come as a surprise to some people who include it, it it did to me i i saw it at the time when i when it was first running the series and i seem to always remember folly as being integral to the whole of the, of the first two seasons it actually came as a surprise to me going back to watch it again a few years later and to discover that folly didn't appear at all in the first three quests who did you prefer motley or folly i wasn't f- a fan of either of them I, I must make that clear neither of them are funny folly i thought was basically a rip-off of Timothy Claypole from Rent-A-Ghost. I don't know if you remember Rent-A-Ghost. A very, very similar laugh to Timothy Claypole and a, a, lot, a, a somewhat similar voice. I, I don't find him particularly engaging, but Motley, with his forced false cockney accent and his constant, relentless moaning, I, I just couldn't bear him. It's not saying very much, but if it's a choice between the two, I'd, I'd rather have Folly in the story than Motley. But Merlin is pleased to see that Simon has discovered both Casper and his headache pills. Quite why such an apparently powerful wizard to such as Merlin require headache pills, I don't know. Perhaps he forgot the spell for curing his headache. He thanks Simon, but says he must do better. In this instance, doing better translates to answering riddles. I have said in favour of Simon and his team that they are much more assertive than previous teams, but they missed a fantastic blackmail opportunity here. Merlin, give us all of your magic spells, or I'm <laughs> you the headache pills. Even worse than speaking louder... Here's Casper. <laughs> Give us lots of spells or I'm not taking Casper with me any further. <laughs> there are so many opportunities they could have had to really, really twist Merlin's arm there and they missed it completely. What a bunch of numbskulls. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, dog's bottoms. The riddles, anyway. The first one is way too easy. What, what was, was the, the prince of the pond? Let's hear it, guys. Frog. Uh, it's, it's, it, that's definitely much too easy. There's just a chance somebody might say toad. Considering a few minutes ago we had a riddle about Saladin. Yeah, a bit of a leap from one extreme to the other, isn't it? And the second riddle, I think, is a little bit dodgy. A common magic, far from ground, removes small blemishes from one's hand. Well, soap is definitely the wrong answer. I need to stress that because soap doesn't remove blemishes from your hand. It removes dirt from your hand. It doesn't necessarily remove blemishes. But wart charming... Who the hell is ever going to have heard of that? It's a very, very iffy question, I would say. I had this conversation with my wife last night because we were watching it together. She had never heard of Wart Charming, and I was surprised that she'd never heard of Wart Charming because I had heard of Wart Charming, and then I really thought about it, and then I realised the reason I'd heard of Wart Charming was because I'd heard it on Nightmare. Exactly. I'd be able to answer the riddle no problem today, but that's because I've seen it. 
the episode of Nightmare it's taken from. It was actually um, a similar riddle was used in one of the books as well, which is fine. Uh, but at the time, and especially children, who would, who would have heard of it? Nobody's. And then, of course, we've got the, uh, the cat riddle as well. She rides at night on broomstick flight and cooks her spells in a cauldron black. Her robe is dark, her eyes are bright. But what precisely is her? There are so many answers that would actually be legitimate to that. I suppose so. Familiar, okay, yeah, I'll accept that is a perfectly reasonable answer. You could also say furry, four-pawed, glowy-eyed. The question isn't precise. It's not telling you exactly what it's asking for. What they originally said was black. Yeah. And that could have been the answer. Yeah. I would have given them that one. Yeah, it's it, it's not precise enough. But they did apparently get the right answer. Oh, yeah. Two is the score, and Merlin gives the team two spells. The first is called Anvil, and is offensive in nature. It is also rather hasty. The second is called Lantern. The way ahead is open to you, but the path is perilous. Somewhere ahead of you lies Mogdred, my alter ego. He is the dark side of my nature and of my magic and must be overcome. I like the idea of Mogdred being Merlin's darker half. It's a shame that the series never quite specified what that meant. I don't know, for instance, is it possible for Merlin and Mogdred to both be in the same room? You know, are they actually bifurcated or is... Or is it like a Jekyll and Hyde thing? When one of them goes into dormancy, the other one suddenly merges, taking over the body, and the body changes its appearance somewhat. I'd love to have found out the exact answer to that. John Woodnut's performances as Mogdred were absolutely terrifying. And that actually, for me, was incredibly important because if you actually take away the performance of Woodnut from it, Mogdred is actually a really boring character. He's got some of the cheesiest, corniest dialogue you will ever encounter on a TV program. The quail, you will bow down before me. Oh, God. You will swear to Mogdred. Yes, it's really, really bad dialogue he gets. It's terrible. He delivers it with so much gusto. You have to go along with it. Lord Fear, in the later years, was vastly more interesting because he had vastly better dialogue. John Woodnut saves Mogdred from being boring because of his performances. I would just wish that we'd found out exactly what was the relationship between Merlin and Mogdred. What does he mean? by the dark side of my nature. Yeah, well, we have our own theories. You explored in the audio dramas. Yeah, it was called When Five Tribes Go to War, that one. Tells the story of where Lord Fear came from and how Merlin and Mogdred moved aside. Merlin and Mogdred disappeared at the end of the fourth season um, without any real explanation. So I decided to... um, explore possible reasons for why they left. There's no explanation for where Lord Fear came from within the TV series either. We came up with an origin story for him as well. The idea I had in that was that Merlin and Mogdred were originally one person. He was just a good guy and the bad guy. And somehow the two halves got separated. The idea I had was that the intelligence and evil half of Merlin, by some magical means, broke off and became a separate individual. And what was left remained Merlin. The team guides Simon to the door and, as he enters the next chamber. Warning team, a complete temporal disruption approaching. Time is now the enemy. Oh dear, a temporal disruption complete. And on that note, it's time for us to sign off as well. So, Simon, where can they find you on the internet? On YouTube, I am the Phantom Monk, so just search the Phantom Monk, you should find it quite easy. Uh, same on Instagram, you can look me up on there. 
Martin, do you have anything you want to plug? No. <laughs> if you're interested in the uh, audio plays that we made to supplement Nightmare, you can find them on dunshelmplayers.wordpress.com. Um, and, uh, you should be able to find your way from there. Okay, and if you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, we are at Nightmare Pod, and we'll see you next time. And in the meantime, don't have nightmares. Just watch them instead. If you'd like to contact the podcast, you can email us on broomcupboardclub at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter. We're NightmarePod. We'd especially like to hear from you if you've been involved in the programme in some way, be it as a contestant, an actor or behind the scenes. We really want to hear from you.